Hi Janina. Hi Emma. How you doing? I'm alright, how are you? Pretty good, pretty good. Feeling ready for some sexy history. Answering some questions about history with Emma and Janina and telling people how it's sexy. That was a great, super smooth and not at all awkward way to introduce what we do on our podcast. Yeah, it's almost like I vaguely know what we do here. (laughs) Just vaguely, just a little bit. But who who are you? Who are you to talk about history and how sexy it is? I'm Dr. Emma Southern, historian at large. Great. Yeah, freelance historian for anyone who wants me. (laughs) And who wouldn't? Who wouldn't? Exactly. Who are you, Janina? I'm just some random. Well, you're just some girl I found. I'm I'm Janina Matheson, writer who some did study history at high school and university for a bit. Yeah. So. Writer, actor. And. Musician. And layabout. And layabout, yeah. Yeah. Like Percy Shelley. What are we talking about today, Janina? We are talking about Vikings and Mongols. The question is, from Nick Maparades, have you ever discussed on the podcast the role of women in Viking and Mongolian kingdoms slash empires? From my knowledge, I know they had a larger role than textbooks credit women with. Um, So technically, the answer to that question is no, we haven't. Uh, (laughs) So that's the end of this podcast. Thank you. We'll see. (laughs) Your question's been answered. Yeah. (laughs) Um, but uh, reading between the lines, I'm going to assume that he would like us to talk about it. So we're going to talk about it. <laughs> and the reason that we're talking reading between the lines again about these two is that they are both considered to be very martial cultures, cultures of warfare and killing and murder and ma- what we in Western Europe consider to be manly man activities. And therefore, they are when we see them in textbooks or when we see them in fiction or when we see them in documentaries, we're really only looking at big men with big swords or bows and arrows, and women are kind of non existent <laughs> to a certain extent. Mm-hmm. But when you actually look at the sources, then you find that women were doing more interesting things because women are always around. Yeah. Yeah. They were not, I have to say, Neither of them are like, ne- again, necessarily like super great societies for women. Yeah, they're th- not... there are very few of those around. Uh, there are. Even limited. now. Um, like they're both very much patriarchal societies where the default is that power is masculine and that like the things that are most lauded are martial activity and only men do that, really. But although not entirely. Yeah. And that has been contested. And this is one of the things that I found interesting while reading about this stuff is whatever the um, the reality was, which again, as is true of most history, I think we can really only speculate about based on the scant evidence that we have. Mm-hmm. I think looking at the historiography of these sorts of societies, particularly Vikings, when you look at some of the sort of I guess biological research that's been done mm-hmm. recently, it it makes it makes me question how well it makes me think again about how you need to look at the pervading attitudes that influenced historical interpretation of that evidence as it was developed because history is constantly looking back to other what's the word for it like research and writing yeah other, it's always redoing itself yeah yeah um, by other historians. Uh, and you, it's important to take into 
I think whenever you read anything, it's important to take into account what that person's prejudices and expectations might have been. Yes. It's, I think it's near impossible for any human to look at anything and interpret it with without any bias. Sure, yeah, you're always are. looking through your own lens of understanding. Yeah. And so I suspect the way you're talking about is the fact that for a very long time in archaeology, um, whenever a grave was found that had weaponry in it mm-hmm. or armor it was just automatically categorized as a male grave yep. if it was a warrior grave then nobody looked too closely at the skeleton because they just saw it as a male grave but and it became very- kind of a circular logic thing as well like this yeah the skeleton is a man because it was found with a sword and we know that men were buried with swords because this All person the, yeah. also was a man who was buried with a sword but the thing that designates that they were men is the swords and nothing the else. sword Exactly. And there, and all women were buried with brooches and therefore if we find a brooch, that was a woman. But a lot of that archaeology is very old. And like when you look at all archaeology, so much of it was dug up in like the 19th century and early 20th century. And they did what we would now consider to be dreadful things with it. <laughs> but recently, very, very recently, people have started doing gen- genetic testing of some skeletons so there was a particular argument over one found in sweden which is got the snappy name of bj581 (laughs) just rolls off the tongue just rolls right off the tongue so bj581 was originally categorized as male because it was a warrior grave found with lots and lots of you know, armour and uh, and things like that and a couple of horses i think uh, in that one as well Two horses, yeah, so Mm -hmm. a spear, a knife, two shields, two horses, some arrows, um, a a set of gaming pieces indicating their role as an officer, that kind of thing. So it was categorised in the 90s as male, up to the 90s even, but around about the early 2000s, people started debating the idea that female Viking warriors were not as mythological as earlier scholars had written them off as. So there are sagas and things about female Vikings, female Viking warriors. And basically most modern Western scholars went, nah, it's a myth, myth, mate, myth. Because we've not got any Which female graves. So <laughs> to do all yeah. the time about everything. So they were like, well, we've not got any female graves, have we? So, and eventually in order to sort of settle the argument, a bunch of delightful Norwegian and Swedish people all got together and did some genetic testing on BJ581 and discovered that the skeleton was in fact female. And there have been some other recent ones as well. There is um, an Australian historian called something McLeod, Shane McLeod, uh, has written quite a bit about burial sites across England. Mm-hmm. 14 burial sites in total, analysing the bones from burial sites with a lot of weaponry that have been presumed to be completely me- made up of men and found that actually there were women in the mix as well. Yes. Um, yeah. Uh, which is potentially not necessarily confirms that there were women warriors in the mix, but it does contradict some historians who claimed that the Vikings, when they set sail... Only men were on those ships. Women stayed completely yeah. at home and they didn't migrate with their husbands. They weren't settlers. And that men who left picked up women along the way from the people who were already in the lands that they were trying to conquer. So this would yeah. 
yeah, the, the existence of Viking. But, which sells into the idea of Vikings as nothing more than raiders uh, who yeah. kind of came in and raped and pillaged and then ran away again. And we're all 100% berserker men with just, I'm going to say this to annoy Oliver, with horns on their helmets and <laughs> drinking blood out of skulls. Yeah. Like all of that stuff is how you imagine Vikings, but potentially there were certainly women among them. There is a lot of, I remember when I used to teach university, I used to make students debate because one, it meant that I didn't have to do so much work and two, they had to do some. And <laughs> that was always, that was the aim of all things. Uh-huh. And I used to, one of the things I used to make them debate was about whether the Vikings were raiders or traders, like where they... <laughs> Just like, because what's the point of just rolling up and turning up in Ireland or England and just being like, we're just going to burn it all down and then run away. (laughs) The end, bye. Yeah. Yeah. There's just no point to that. There's a lot of energy over nothing. Exactly. Like, what'd you get out of that? Yeah. Yeah. And there was obviously a lot more, they were military, but they were mostly kind of mercenary and getting involved in kind of the battles that were going on amongst people of Europe and Ireland and England particularly Mm. and also they were hanging out and living there and there was once we've talked about Sven Forkbeard before Mm -hmm. briefly the king of England yeah (laughs) because they settled and obviously settled Iceland which is your main Viking place and an example of a particularly powerful woman as well if like this isn't this is an awkward segue um, <laughs> that awed the deep-minded whose husband yeah. died so she uprooted her household and became one of the most important early settlers of Iceland um, yeah. yeah and there's quite a lot of like good Icelandic stuff about like powerful women yeah there's the the woman uh, in the land Namabok, which is my attempt at Icelandic uh, there are <laughs> which lists basically like the founding fathers of Iceland. There are 13 women listed in that, of which one is a woman called, and I mean, this sounds like not a name. She's called Unnur, Unnur, <laughs> U-N-N-R. It's transliterated, I think, in English. Um, sure. Who pronounceable. lived in Scotland and was a, a Viking woman who had been living in Scotland and her father and her son died. And so she went off on a, with a big retinue, went off on a trip to Orkney and then to the Faroe Islands and then to Iceland. And then she kind of took over loads of Iceland and set herself up as ruling it and had a great time. That's excellent. Yeah. And, the, you know, and this is the kind of thing that earlier historians used to say it was mythical. Oh, now I think that Inur and Ord might be the same person. Oh, are they? Because this BBC thing that I've looked at lists her a person as Ord who went basically that same route. She mar- She was in Dublin and her husband and her son died and then she went oh. to Orkney, Faroe and Iceland. Maybe she's one of these people who can't lock down a, a final name. Can't lock down a final place. Ord is a name that's given to a lot of... Icelandic women, uh, Icelandic Viking women, like a lot. Mm-hmm. And it kind of almost feels like just calling someone woman. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe it's just like the Jane of 
Vikings. Yeah. Because there's another story which I really love, which is from a saga, which was written down in like the 13th century, but described things that were happening in the like eighth and like ninth and tenth century about a guy called Gisli. Mm-hmm. He was an outlaw and it's the the Gisli saga. And his wife is called Aud. Basically some guys go to her and say, Tell us where your husband is and she says no. And they say, Look, we'll give you this like sixty pounds of silver if you will. And she says, No. And then they go, oh, go on, we'll give you all the silver. And she says, oh, well, you know, as a widow woman, cash is the thing I need the most. So if I take it, can I do what I want with it? Is it my money to do what I want with? And they say, yeah, sure. Of course, it's yours. So she says, all right, I'll take the money. And then they they give her the money and she puts it in a big purse, which I assume is like a big sack. Mm -hmm. And then they go, all right, tell me where your husband is. And so she stands up and then wangs him in the face with it. Um, and says, take that for believing me, you absolute twat. Um, <laughs> as if I'd ever hand over my money, take your money and get out. <laughs> oh, I love her. Yeah. And then she says, you know, no matter what happens, you'll always remember that you were hit by a woman. So go fuck yourself, which is very funny. <laughs> but yeah, so, I mean, everybody seems to be called awed at some point. So there's, the Vikings are quite interesting because there is this like, clear division to a certain extent within culture they have these women who fought and obviously there were women about Mm -hmm. but they're not never talked about as if they're anything other than kind of than exceptions really yeah like as much as they were there and around and everybody was super impressed that they could act like men they were still considered to be acting like men and everybody was impressed by it and i think that's what the major difference between that northern european viking thing is which is that hey cool you're a woman who's acting like a man like you're the word they use is havata it's like that's unusual but that's pretty cool i'm impressed Mm -hmm. whereas in western european tradition at the same time because it's christian and it's coming out of classical thinking which if you remember from the periods episode is like women are literal monsters they are (laughs) men who failed when a woman all remember that yeah when a woman tries to act like a man in the western european tradition everyone's like oh god it's unnatural and wrong yeah and they don't like it at all and they're super freaked out by it and you know the idea of a woman fighting in the western european tradition is somewhat repulsive the only time that they're allowed to act then even when they act like men uh in a kind of monastic context where they give up sex basically (laughs) they're considered to be like not men but third gender like not as good as men but not as bad as women (laughs) whereas the norse tradition seems to be like all right good for you but at the same time they have words like when they're describing cowardice they use basically a kind of derogatory word for woman yeah so in almost exactly the way that english has the word bitch yeah so it's still very patriarchal society. But women did have comparatively quite a lot of rights. They could divorce at will if they wanted to, and they could take control of property. Um, they could. They they tended to run things business-wise a lot, so were equipped for that if their husbands died or they got divorced. Yeah. They were expect like there were expectations that women would be able to look after themselves, which is something that is very absent from a lot of Western European Yes, very much so. The thing with Norse society, which is very different to Western European society, but it's very similar 
in a way, not quite, but similar to the Mongol Empire, is that there is a very clear division between the domestic and the warlike. And the public-private, which is what the Western European is, is a much more blurry kind of division whereas Norse is like there's the domestic which is everything that's at home and then there's war so there's war and everything else and men rule war but women can kind of rule everything else <laughs> so that means that women are managing the domestic in inverted commas which is potentially le- like managing and controlling immense amounts of land is managing and is doing politics basically because when you're having to negotiate between all of the people who live in one area then that's the probably the women that are doing it and the domestic also covers basically the entire economic industry (laughs) so the massive textile industry where norse people were importing and exporting textiles was completely female basically like they were producing and exporting immense numbers and types of fabrics that they were exporting and that was basically considered to be domestic so that was that's what women are doing so there is a a separation and there can be kind of people crossing over those lines into the male and female spheres, but because this female sphere is so enormous and covers everything that's not war, that gives people them space to have a lot more power and a lot more status than was ever really allowed in the Western tradition. Yeah, and a lot of them, I kind of like this too, but a lot of women were buried with keys to Mm symbolise the control and power they had over sort of business affairs and that's that's kind of nice very very with a key she was in charge of a thing a big massive set of keys of all the things that she was in charge of like all the houses and all of the lands and all of the businesses that she could potentially be running yeah it's pretty great the the only downside i say only downside but one of the downsides is that is that the people who were writing about the viking world were pretty much my only people writing sagas (laughs) and so almost all of the sagas are just about people doing war and so you have this problem of the sagas are all about war which makes it look like the only thing they cared about and the only thing they did was war Mm -hmm. made even worse by the fact that they made pretty much the main time that they came in contact with people in such a way that other people wrote it down was when they rolled up and burnt their church down (laughs) yeah which upset people oddly didn't like it at all and that they wrote considerably less about when they turned up with some lovely fabric and then settled down and had some children again yeah weird. it's i mean weird. it's not it's not as you know trading fabrics not so much of a page turner it's not what you need is some like boring american contemporary fiction people to write about like how difficult it is to have a, a normal life yeah if we had some of those then that would be ideal if we could just have some like Richard Yates I'm trying to think of some other like oh all they do is go to work and they don't like each other very much but they're unhappy yeah you know that kind of thing who doesn't love that kind of Jonathan Franzen that kind of shit yeah yeah I I mean I wouldn't read it I mean, no, nobody, I can't imagine why anybody would want to read like 900 pages of here's some middle class people and they're sad, but apparently a lot of people do. Sorry if you do. <laughs> Have you ever thought of reading about space? Because it's sometimes so much more fun. There's like, so much shooting in space. <laughs> and sometimes <laughs> you can read about space and it can also be a little about how your workplace and sometimes it's awkward. 
True. I mean, read some Becky Chambers and you'll be Read some be Becky Chambers. Yeah, I mean, she's a lot of fun. But also... If anyone takes anything away from this is that they should read some Becky Chambers. <laughs> and that yeah. I wish that somebody had been writing that stuff. I mean, this st- that stuff will be super useful in the future because people will be like, oh, okay, this is maybe what it was like. <laughs> yeah, completely. Yeah, so we don't have any of those. So as a result, we don't really know, like, what the hell was going on. They, they clearly thought that war was the most important thing and the most interesting thing that the Vikings could do. And Which is and like... You can't really scoff at now because of of all of the movies that come out every year, like 21, like out of 25 of them are superheroes fighting each other. So yeah. it's not an obsession that stopped. It's not. No, we bloody love a good war. Love a good war. Yeah. And I, I can't blame them because it's a novelty, like going and fighting an Anglo-Saxon. Or conquering a yeah. barren land full of sheep. And the thing is, when you when all of your fiction is is like super noble and dramatic tales of sacrifices people make in war, you can pretend that if you were in war, you would be able to do that instead of actually <laughs> just cower on the ground, which is what ninety nine percent of us would do. Yeah, absolutely. Just cowering around, chilling, yeah. trading, like carrying some some fabric around and yeah. exchanging it for some gold and then showering at some people until they give you some more gold. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. But the other thing that is very similar between the Mongo world, which we will get to, and the Norse world is that the rights of a woman and the status of a woman are not necessarily... Well, people say it's not... It's less a function of her sex than her marital status, but it is a function of her sex because this doesn't apply to men. It is that you get more marital status, more status as your marital status changes. So an unmarried woman is kind of the lowest on the totem pole and then a married woman mm-hmm. is pretty great because she's sort of fairly equal with her husband or at least an access through her husband. And then a widow can basically do what she likes. Yeah, and essentially replaces her husband in a yes. lot of ways. Yeah, so all, yeah, women could gain power and influence, but only through men. Through men, exactly. And they couldn't, it's not that they couldn't necessarily inherit and own, it's just the control of it is an issue. And so it's not, uh, as I say at the beginning, it's not like a particularly utopian society, because obviously in an ideal world, they would be able to do what the fuck they liked, even if they decided to never get married. But that wasn't really a particularly an option. (laughs) Not if they wanted social status anyway. Yeah. If they wanted status and power and the ability to own a lot and do a lot, at least as far as we know. There might have been tons of women who never married, who ran massive businesses, but because they don't impact on men, never got written down. Don't really know. Yeah. Again, history is written down by men. (laughs) It is. It's a real shame. It's such a shame. It would be a lot easier if women's voices hadn't been completely eradicated. (laughs) It would be. Yeah. Yeah. Had a different picture, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> we would. It would be great. There was a really good book that I read, which is called Women in the Viking Age by Judith Jesh, which sounds like a made-up name, but I'll overlook it. And it's from the 90s, where it's super great, and it kind of breaks down the different forms of evidence that you can use and what women look like in all of the different forms of evidence. So women in art and mm-hmm. poetry, women in archaeology, women in runic texts so runic inscriptions 
the evidence of names in like colonial texts, what people who came into contact with the Vikings said about women, that kind of thing, breaks down all the different ways that you can see them through different lenses. Mm -hmm. But all of it is mediated by something, basically. Like the archaeology is mediated by how you interpret it. The runes are good because they are, you can, like basically runic inscriptions are like the same as the Latin ones, essentially. Like, you know, people wrote stuff down on stones and then put them up because they wanted people to know whatever they wanted to write down. And it's super useful. Some of it is like gravestones. Some of it is like markers. Some of it's just, you know, people saying stuff. Some of it is people writing their name on things, you know, writing your name on a hairbrush or whatever. Uh, Super useful. And you can kind of see certain stuff, but it is mediated to a certain extent by the fact that it's only people who could afford to write stuff on stone and erect it and that it's by like the tropes of how you say stuff but they're very interesting yeah but this is this is the thing that's always like i think i'm thinking about this more and more since we've been doing this podcast but it is applicable to everything not just history i thought about this this is not at all related i'm going on a wild tangent here but okay that's fine because of fitbit we as a society now have an enormous amount of data about how people sleep, like unprecedented mm-hmm. degree of information about people's sleeping patterns because of Fitbit. But that is all skewed by the fact that it's the sort of people who want and can afford a Fitbit. And that means yeah. that data can't really tell us that much about people as a whole, even though it's an enormous amount of people, they belong, yeah. yet, like you can't, necessarily draw hard and firm conclusions from it and that obviously becomes more and more true the less data you have and the older that it is because it's harder to see it in context yeah absolutely and like yeah fitbit data is telling you what people who are primarily white and primarily very middle class with office jobs (laughs) or professional jobs in Western Europe and America and the Anglophone world, like it tells you about a very specific strata of society. Yeah. Like not anybody really below that and nobody above that, like nobody in the rest of the world really, like super specific. Mm-hmm. And it's the same with particularly inscriptions, like you have to have the means and the desire yeah. to write down your shit on a piece of stone and then put it up in a public place. Yeah. And the who wants to do that and who can do that changes over time. And they're super useful when you find one that says something long and great, but you have to say, okay, so this is a specific point. Yeah. Like there's a woman called Ragnild in Viking era Denmark who wrote like a massive thing about her second husband called Ali. Mm-hmm. Which you don't really think of Vikings called Ali Ragnhild. Yes, <laughs> Ali, less so. <laughs> but I think it's important to remember that there were Allies. Yeah. And so she tells all about like his deeds and rah, 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 and all about their sons and like their pals. And then also says that she has a previous husband and she puts up one for him as well. He's called Gunnolf, which is a... That's you know, more Viking a more than Ali. Yeah. And it's yeah. like, that's all super useful stuff. It doesn't really tell us about her, though. All it tells us is that 
she had the means and the ability to yeah. put up a monument to her husband. But it's all just talking about him, which is... <laughs> yeah. So you're like, all right, good, thanks. And and how was your day? Yeah, do you want to tell us about your life? I just want to say, and this is unrelated to anything, but uh, on the same page that I read this and I've circled it, there was a King Gorm. So Great. I just feel like everyone should know that there was once a guy in Jutland called King Gorm. That is brilliant. I'm so glad yeah. I know that. I know, I see I'm here to help you. Yeah, <laughs> yeah so that's the fun wild of the Vikings. I mean, the, yeah. the answer is it's difficult. And the answer from Mongols is very similar. <laughs> <laughs> um, but Mongols are nomadic, which brings in a whole area of difference, like because they have an even stricter division of who does what in their culture. Mm-hmm. of what is the domestic and staying at home and looking after the tents and who is going around feeding everybody, basically. Like, finding the next place to go and marching around and battling and doing the outside of the camp stuff. So there's, like, inside the camp and outside the camp jobs. Yeah. But because of that, and it's a general rule that pre-modern nomadic societies were spaces in which women could access considerably more social status and power and freedom in inverted commas than settled societies could really because they were absolutely vital for the survival of everybody that everybody was doing their job and everybody's job was as vital as everybody else's it's not like a world in which because settled societies tend to be a bit richer and less on the verge of everybody dying within 10 days at all times. <laughs> <laughs> Whereas nomadic society, like, every, they're always on the brink, like, one bad plague through some fucking sheep or one bad season of rain and you've got a lot of dead people. And so yeah. everybody has to rely on everybody doing their job as well as possible. So no job can, can be considered to be superfluous or useless whereas in for example the western world the domestic like you know staying at home with babies and cleaning and cooking and da 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 tends to be seen as somewhat superfluous and useless and it doesn't make money so who gives a shit and whereas that can't be seen as useless like raising babies keeping things to keeping the place together keeping place clean so people don't get sick like it can't be seen as useless in a nomadic society yeah so it gives just because everybody's job is seen as important means that people women have more access to being seen as important yeah i did i did read a couple of um claims that women could fight in the army i don't know what the evidence is for that neither of the places i found that um cited them particularly strongly but it seems to be it seemed like likely in that because it is a nomadic society there are higher risks to survival you would get to the point where it's like you know all hands on deck you're not going to turn down someone who can fight (laughs) when you when you are just a little tribe that's well not a little tribe i mean obviously the mongols were an incredible empire but but they've you know, come out moving. of little tribes, yeah. Yeah, and you don't have a battalion waiting behind you that can support you. You're fighting as you are. If yeah. women can fight, why, you know, in that situation, why wouldn't you let them? I also read a claim, and this is kind of hilarious. I don't know if it's true. This is just someone who answered a question on Quora, so I don't know um, how what his <laughs> what his 
don't know what his background is. Background is. I don't know if he's a historian or just someone who read a book once, but claimed that Mongol armies tended to put mothers and children at the back to make their numbers appear larger than they really were, <laughs> which is a great tactic. That um, is a as good long tactic. as they can, you know, are still protected. <laughs> In the event that the opposing yeah. army blasts through. It's certainly believed anyway that all children, no matter what, received like at least basic training in like riding horses, like those little Mongolian horses, and like being able to shoot while you're on a horse. Like at the very least, like yeah. pretty much everybody could do that. In terms of women fighting, there's less archaeology around to check. And a lot of the, there's a secret history, the Mongolian history book that was written, and lots of people looking at the Mongols from the outside. <laughs> and they do cite a, a surprising, like a decent number of women yeah. who they can name as as being kind of interested in fighting and there but they're all kind of cited as unusual in the same way so in in the same way it's like hey cool good for you you want to fight like a yeah. boy that's okay. and that sort of situation i don't know if that would be as unusual to the people from the outside looking in or is that unusual yeah. to the mongols maybe it wasn't so my reading of that kind of thing is that if People like Marco Polo, who was, to be fair, very credulous man. But if they are <laughs> citing one specific person, then that means they're not looking at lots of women fighting, if you know what I mean. They're not sure. like, oh my goodness, there were loads of women. They're like, we saw the soldiers and there was a girl there. And her name was like Kutalon Chagan, who was the daughter of Kwaidu Khan, great granddaughter of Genghis Khan, mm-hmm. who was one of the people who's kind of famous for fighting like a man. And there's another woman called Konchak, who is the daughter of one of the Khans in Iran when, like, in the after Genghis and when it all split up after Genghis Khan died. He, one of the Khans there, he's, she's the daughter of one of those. So she fought in battle um, and then died in battle. And then after she died, the sources say that she was given a male name in order to, because she had been, she had fought like a man and died like a man. So they rename her. Oh, right. Uh, and give her sure. a boy name. Sure. Which, yeah. Which is interesting. So even there probably weren't like so many because they are seen as an exception rather than a rule. Yeah, and it's still, like, they're impressive not for their own strength, but because their strength is, like, men's strength. Exactly. Yeah. And women were kind of more of a... In a separate world, they could have their power and they could have immense economic power or huge political power because politics was talking. That is kind of not necessarily a masculine thing. So, like, the Quirrelti... Where, which is like the big gathering of all of the clans and all of the tribes where they would come together to sort out what they were going to do and like when they would choose the next Khan and decide what was going to happen. Like there would be a fair amount of women involved in that who would be talking and doing all of the gentle persuading. There were cases of women acting as the great Khan as well. Um, yeah. Like, uh, I particularly like this account of uh, by a historian called Jack Weatherford about Torajin or Torajini, who was the yes. daughter-in-law of Genghis Khan. So Genghis Khan's son Ogadai became the big alcoholic. Yeah. Yeah, became great Khan, and then he was just an alcoholic, 
so one of his wives, not his primary wife, but but one who apparently was just so badass it didn't matter, became effectively <laughs> leader on his behalf. And then when he died, she assumed complete control for four years until her own son took over. And she replaced all of her husband's ministers with her own, including other women. Yes. And, but, yeah, wielded yeah. a lot of political power. This is another one of those things where she is basically acts as, like, if you asked anybody in the Empire time who is the Great Khan, they would have said Ogadai, and then they would have said Kuyuk. But she was... She was the real power, but she was regent, basically. Um, yeah. And so if you were going to make a king list, and if all that survived was a king list, her name wouldn't be on it, necessarily. Yeah, even and, if she was king in action. Yeah, exactly. And that they... Basically, like, one of the main ways that women in a very similar way to the Norse is that they would be married, they would have children, and then their husbands would die, and then they would be in charge of all of their husband's land and dependents and property, and they would have it, and technically they would be looking after it for their children, mm. or, like, with their children, as called a panage, but they were, in practice, they're ruling what were potentially immense kingdoms by the time you get to the empire period like yeah. i'm going to butcher this poor name but one of the contemporaries of toreg toregene or toregeni is sorghatani beke who is kind of cousin of ogadai i think mm-hmm. and her husband was one of genghis khan's great generals and conquered massive parts of the world and genghis's big thing obviously was if you conquer it then you can control it to a certain extent like you're in charge of administering it um and so when he died she took it all on um and then she fought ogadai for a bunch of stuff and was like like my husband like conquered that massive bit of asia yeah (laughs) so it's mine now and won and then she ruled it and had this immense economic power immense social status this immense political power but technically only on behalf of her son. Yes, and it was something that she won, I think, in part because, or maybe almost entirely because she had four really strong warlike sons. Yes, all of whom became great Khan. Yeah, so like was able to say, I have more to offer because my children are better than yours. Yeah. (laughs) Which is interesting. Fucking fight me, Ogadai, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Ogadai, of course, basically all of, like, these women are able to gather the amount of immense power during that specific period, which is about a kind of 10-year period um, from about 1240 to 1250 because he is a a staggering alcoholic who does not function. Uh, (laughs) And the general rule with certainly Khans is that you have four wives, well, you can have as many fucking wives as you like, but you have, like, four main wives and they're your major wives who can do whatever and then the rest of them are like secondary wives Mm. and so his wives were able to kind of get on with shit in his physical presence but spiritual absence (laughs) (laughs) i really liked i found a really nice article actually uh there's a well there's a guy called bruno de nicola who's written a lot about women in the mongol world and like tries really hard to look at what life might have been like like on a day-to-day basis and he wrote about female ordos 
which was really interesting, which is that uh, an ordo is like the camp. Mm-hmm. It's like the home base, basically. So when you have the king's ordo is like where all of the power is and like everybody rocks up and then unpacks everything and they unpack all of their tents and they unpack their little folding mosque and they unpack some shops and it's like a little mini tent city um, and it moves around. But wherever the ordo is is where the king is and that's where everybody flocks to. But women particularly main wives had ordos of their own so they would have they wouldn't be a part of the king's ordo they would have their own mm-hmm. separate one and what would often happen is that the king would not necessarily have his own one but he would travel between his wives ones yeah and so he talks about the Khan spending one night at the Ordo of one of his wives and then the court is held there and the gifts which are presented to the Khan are placed in the treasury of that wife and then the next day he goes to the next one and the next day he goes to the next one. But because these Ordos are immense, basically tent cities of huge, like they've got mosques in them and they've got shops in them and they have production in them and they have all of the livestock and stuff that they're taking with them and huge treasuries like these women rule them in the absence of the khan and he is mostly absent so yeah but it is a power that is attained through your husband again yeah yeah i just want to talk for a little bit about mondokai because she go for it (laughs) you just want to talk about it i just do um that's okay so she was basically responsible, along with her second husband, for reuniting the Mongol Empire when it was kind of falling falling apart because all the men just stopped caring. (laughs) So she she just made war against all the tribes to reunite them again. And was oh her victory was not really that great because this was when China had strengthened itself and was expanding the Great Wall so they couldn't the Mongolian Empire could no longer sort of expand into that era era but mm-hmm. she just went around one by one reconquering all of the tribes and uniting them again basically in the way that Genghis Khan did at the beginning yeah um to create it so she, yeah she's just great and again but again she did it <laughs> with her husband because she was given status yeah. by her husband but yet still yeah was a badass in her own right so my, my takeaway from all of this is that Power is still something that exists specifically within the masculine sphere. Like, the best sphere to be in is the boy sphere of fighting and going outside the camp and killing people. (laughs) And, like, the hanging out at home doing politics and economics and being rich and powerful over the settled lands that you have is good, but killing is better. So it's not like a... It's not some kind of delightful equal utopia where women are seen as total whole people. Actually, no, that's not true. They're not a delightful utopia where women are seen as equal completely or able to access the same amount of power that men are. They can only access it through men. But at the same time, they do are seen as whole people, which they are not in the Western tradition. (laughs) In the Western tradition... Western Europeans, certainly, they are seen as, in the Roman and Greek tradition, they are seen as literal children forever who are incapable of making a decision about their lives. And in the philosophical tradition, they are seen as broken men. Yeah. Like people who could have been men and could have made it all the way to whole person, but fucking failed the useless shite. 
like weird, bleedy, grotesque monsters. And I mean, so, where is the lie? <laughs> anything that's not that looks pretty great. <laughs> but because the writing that certainly we have access to is Western European writing in English that comes from the Western tradition, they for a very long time didn't see women because they at their core thought that women weren't people so they just didn't look for them yeah and they did things like find a grave and go boy grave girl grave boy grave girl grave and not see the shades of gray yeah and so it kind of fucking blows the mind of western historians a little bit that women were able to do anything at all (laughs) and it's complicated because we don't have the framework in our brains really to talk about it and to talk about gender relations outside of what is completely ingrained in us that if it, it that there can be anything other than power and no power or male and female or good and bad like and find trying to talk about completely different cultures that have completely different ideas of how power and gender relations work it's kind of a struggle yeah it's Um, almost impossible (laughs) yeah it's tough and you have to try to find a and I, i find it kind of frustrating reading a lot of this stuff because they are trying to read it through the lens of well women are just broken men aren't they yeah um or women are literal children and all primitive societies primitive and extreme but think that women are rubbish therefore oh i don't know what i'm looking at like (laughs) it confuses them it confuses us but Hopefully that sort of answered the question a bit. Yeah, hopefully. What are we talking about next time? Next time we are Back to the Nazis, um, which is secretly everyone's favourite, I think. And we have a question from Eve Whittle, who emailed it to us, and she said, what really is the Liebensborn and why has it almost been forgotten about? Uh, this is exciting for me because I don't know at all what Liebensborn is, so yeah, I'm going to... This is going to be, yeah, yeah, exciting for you. I do a bit. And I'm looking forward to telling you all about it. Yeah. Yeah. Hopefully other people have questions that they would like to ask. Yeah. And we will tell them about badass women in the past (laughs) or whatever they want to hear about. And they can tweet us at at sexyhistorypod. Yep. Or you can email us at sexyhistorypod at gmail.com. Or you can Facebook us at sexyhistorypod without the E. And we also have got a listener questionnaire to find out what people think of us, which is terrifying. (laughs) So we thought that we would be like, hey, tell us what you think about us and we'll see what we can do to make it so you like us more. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Please be gentle. Be gentle, be kind, tell us we are good, which will be in the show notes and will be on all of the social media things. I'm still technically off Twitter because I've still got a book to write. Don't, don't we do all get written? Don't even get written in a week at all, which is rubbish. Yeah. But you can still say hello at Nuclear Teeth and just assume that the hello back is already said. Yeah, basically. Eventually, I will. Every so often, kind of lets me go on, and I check, and then I say hello to everybody very quickly, and then I go back off again. Yeah, I'm not off Twitter, but I do tend to ignore it a lot. But you can say hi to me <laughs> at J9 and I. Oliver's not off Twitter, and you can say hello to him at Kiwa. Was that it? 
Is that all the places? I think Leave so. us reviews. Yeah. Be nice about us. Tell your friends we're good. Yeah. I that's, think that's everything. That's everything. Yeah. Well, yeah. it was a ple- always a pleasure to hang out with you and talk about history, didn't you know? Oh, you too. It's been delightful. <laughs> <laughs> Bye. Bye.